0: Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. Computerization has been the driving force of so much of modern life. And in the popular imagination, computers are not only superior to humans in speed and accuracy, but they do their work theoretically free from prejudice, treating users equally without regard to race or gender. Historian of technology, Marie Hicks, is helping to complicate our understanding of how computers shape our world. And this year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, she's working on a new book exploring how technological systems in Great Britain continue to perpetuate social inequities. Welcome, Marie.
1: Thanks for having me. So
0: one of the things in looking into your project I was very, very interested to learn is that the U.K. was actually our first digital state.
1: It was, and I think a lot of people don't know that. And that's a perfect example of how important history is for shaping the world around us because so many people, if you ask them, they'll think, well, it must have been the U.S. because we've been so strong in computing for so long. But in fact, the U.K. had not only the first digital programmable computers, but they used them to help win World War II. So they actually deployed them in a way that shaped geopolitical events. So that's a really important first. And they continued to be strong in computing after World War II, but then kind of precipitously declined. And that's a really cautionary tale. That's an important story there. And um, that's something that I talk about in my first book.
0: Mm -hmm. So your first book looks primarily at Issues of gender, and and the current project is working is looking primarily at transgendered people, um, and how they're you're discovering a, a very deep history of algorithmic bias in how technological systems are constructing uh, certain people as less than ideal users and making them seem non-normative. Can you give us a snapshot? Snapshot of how this happens, how does this occur?
1: Yes, definitely. And to talk about that, I'm going to back up just a second and talk about how I came to this topic. Um, Because I know algorithmic bias is sort of in the news a lot today. But this actually came about, um, you know, I I became interested in this before a lot of what's going on in the news today started happening. And that was because as I was doing the research for um, programmed inequality, my first book, which, as you mentioned, was really about sort of how uh, women are very strong in computing early on, and they get kind of pushed out of the labor force in the UK. And this actually coincides, it actually helps cause the British decline in computing as a computing superpower. Well, as I was doing the research for that book, I kept finding these files that were closed, and they seemed to have something to do with transgender people petitioning the government... And it had something to do with computers and something to do with pension rights and sort of national um, security, uh, social security rights. And I couldn't figure out what they were about. And so I tried to FOIA them, essentially. And so after years, these Freedom of Information Act requests were acted upon. And some of the files remained closed. Some were opened. And the ones that were opened painted this very interesting portrait of trans people starting to petition the government to recognize them. And not only that, but the government recognizing them in certain ways on paper, and then going through the process of computerizing. So computerizing the welfare state and how people's benefits were paid after they paid taxes into the system. And when they computerized, instead of programming into those computers all of the sort of workarounds and accommodations that they had made on paper for some of these trans individuals, They took that as an opportunity to say, no more, we're not going to program you into the new computer system. We are not going to give essentially the tacit acceptance and the tacit approval of the government by setting this new system up to accommodate you. And they did this very intentionally. They actually had conversations about this. And this is one of, I think, one of the very first examples of transphobic algorithmic bias, where a computer uh, in use by the state is intentionally programmed to not recognize certain people. And the really interesting thing to me is that it actually rolled back some of the accommodations that had already been put in place. You know, they weren't great, but they were making some movements towards accepting at least certain trans individuals. So who's the
0: the they here? Who is dictating this this bias? Where's it coming from?
1: That's a great question. And the they is a little hard to pin down. When I was saying they just now, what I meant was sort of the British central government writ large. But... Specifically, the people who are making these decisions are folks who are high up in the Treasury, high up in the Ministry of Pensions, so basically ministers who have to do with the functioning of the welfare state. And they feel pressure from above to implement policies in certain ways that they think are, you know, in line with what the government wants um, at higher levels. And they also take decisions on their own to decide, okay, here's what is going to say not blow back and make a problem for us down the line. And so one of the things you see these ministers saying, not openly, but in memos to each other, and I'm sure this is one of the reasons the files were closed and then a lot of the names were redacted when they were opened, they're saying we cannot let these, they called trans people, perverts have sort of the right to be recognized by the government. And programming them into this system means that we are recognizing them and we are tacitly approving of them. And so that's the level at which these decisions were being taken. But then of course, sort of lowered down, there are folks who are told, okay, now you implement these policies. And those folks had less control, certainly. They weren't making the policies, but they were also a part of this system that's creating this new way of doing things, which is, um, I think we can safely say, transphobic.
0: In what period of history are we talking about? Are we talking about the 1960s primarily? And does this end? Does it alter? Is there continuity with this bias?
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing to me is that this is very, very early on. As you pointed out at the beginning, the British were kind of you know, the first digital state. And because the welfare state, you know, I always like to say the welfare state was created by policy in the abstract, but by technology in reality. You know, you simply couldn't do a lot of the things they were doing without the speed and power of computers to handle these millions and millions of accounts. And, um, Very many calculations on each account on an ongoing basis. And so they computerize these national um, sort of pension systems in the early 1960s. So that's when all of these decisions are being made and when this is happening. And I'd like to say that, you know, we sort of have, we go down the line and we can pinpoint. A point at which things start to uh, get better or trans people start to get their rights. We have to go very, very, very far um, to see that. In fact, we're still kind of, you know, we're, we're living through that moment now. But what we do see, which I think is hopeful and interesting, is that even during this period, the trans people who are sending letters to the government and arguing for their rights, even though they're doing this on an individual basis, they are talking to each other, a lot of them, behind the scenes. Some of them are, for instance, giving each other advice about, okay, here's how you go about trying to work the system, get your records amended. Um, Some of them are living together. And beyond that, in just sort of a, a general sense, you see this class, this political class, cohering through, well, being oppressed and then speaking out against this oppression and asking, for their rights. And that's the part that I find really interesting, that you can have a new system, in this case, electronic computer computerization, actually start to help cohere a political class. And the reason I think that's so interesting right now is because I think we're seeing that again today. You can look at everything from the Google walkout, to you know, the mass movement of users to leave Facebook. And you can see, well, that's one of the first steps towards hopefully making positive change in these systems that are really kind of top-down, where we as users and even as workers don't have a lot of control.
0: Mm-hmm. This is a nice segue because you're alluding to the private sector as well. So where's the convergence in your project between government bias and bias in the private sector? And is there a distinction? Is this convergence sort of sealed for a long period of time? Uh.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating issue because there is so much overlap and sort of working together of government and private industry. From the beginning, computing is a weapon of war. That's what it is from the beginning. And it's funded as such for decades. I mean, it still is funded as such. And we can forget that sometimes when we see, you know, the fun little gadgets that we use to play games or even just to, you know, stay in touch with each other. But It's always something that is structuring these systems, and that accounts for a lot of the funding and a lot of the direction of the research. One of the reasons I find the British context so interesting is because this line between the public and the private sector is a bit different than in the United States because the British take such strong control over private industry after World War II. So we don't have what I think of sometimes as the American fiction of a separate private and governmental sphere or those running on parallel tracks. And one thing that I think is really important to think about in the context of this history, but ever more so for, you know, what we're seeing today, is that as systems become more and more widespread, widely used, and more important in our lives whether they're you know keeping us alive or they're helping us get paid or communicate these systems become pseudo-governmental whether or not they're under the control of governments. And we're seeing that very, very powerfully today with some of our communications technologies. So in one sense, there are the very um, clear economic links of government funding of private industry where we can talk about, you know, governmentality in the computer industry. But then there's also this kind of fuzzier association that starts to occur when you just get these very powerful systems that start to stand in for systems of control that maybe we wish were more under the control of democratic structures.
0: So you're very much complicating a, a modern history of how we come about um, dealing with identity. And you're, you're connecting it to a both national priorities, economic priorities, geopolitical priorities. You're also describing a kind of conspiratorial uh, background, uh, as it were, why this fascination in your project
1: that sort of reminds me of that line that you know many people have expressed but i think simone de beauvoir said it best uh, a woman is not born she is uh, made or she's constructed and of course when you say something like that if you if you sort of take that to be true that construction is historically contingent so i think that i can say without taking anything away from an individual and you know taking anything away from who that individual you know is that we're all products of our time we're all products of our circumstances in many ways and in order for us i think to have a deeper sense of self and where we come from and where our communities come from we have to understand that history And the reason I'm so fascinated with histories like this is because, for one thing, I used to work in computing. I used to be a Unix systems administrator. And so I used to be part of this infrastructure that, you know, this infrastructure that created uh, the conditions for how we live and how we work. And I took that responsibility very seriously, as did my coworkers. But we all also just saw that, you know, we were also being shaped by a system we were cogs in the machine and that was really where i started thinking about you know i'd like to take a step back and maybe i'd like to understand more of the the meta narrative of what's going on here instead of being so close To the machine, as it were. And I guess that's really why I'm so fascinated because, you know, Bruno Latour once said that machines and inanimate objects, they're the missing masses of our world. In other words, like dark matter, like the missing mass in the universe, we can't really see them or we don't really give them enough credit for how much they totally shape our social relations, shape what's around us, and once we start to take them into account, maybe our agency doesn't look like the driving factor in constructing what's going on in the world anymore. And so I try to walk this fine line between saying, you know, people can control everything versus people control nothing, and try to bring in the tools, the technologies, the machines we use to say, look at how we operate in tandem and how that constructs not just the systems we use, but our own identities. Tell us what
0: you think or what you hope this project will do specifically to advance the cause of equality.
1: Well, I think that stories about um, who we are are very important. And if certain people in certain groups are told you don't have a history, or you, um, you know, you just somehow, you just came on the scene in the 1990s, that's a very limiting view. And that's something that I think is used politically oftentimes, to undercut people's claims for civil rights to sort of constantly keep saying, oh, well, this is new information, we'll have to look into this. Well, if you go back and you actually Uh, can construct a chronology of what's been going on and you can kind of chart uh, progress or the lack thereof, you can start to say, okay, Here's what's actually happened. Here's how long folks have been trying certain strategies. Here's what has worked, and here is what hasn't worked. And then I think you actually can be pragmatic about, okay, here are some political strategies we can use. Here are potentially some personal strategies folks can use. And at a broader level, I think it just kind of gives people hope to see themselves reflected in the world and reflected in the past. I remember um, I went to see the film Hidden Figures, which is based you know, on Margot Lee Shetterly's fantastic book of the same name. And in the audience at the end, you know, it was an audience mostly of black women and black girls, And everybody was just sort of elated and, you know, erupted in applause because they were starving for this kind of representation on screen. And it was very positive and very powerful for them to see that. And I have no doubt it made a difference um, in their lives, especially probably, say, the younger girls who had an interest in science. And so I think those are the sorts of things that history can do in in a fuzzier sense, um, even when you don't get down to the nitty gritty of, well, here are the mistakes we shouldn't repeat, I think it's really important in a general sense to have representation that lets people see themselves and lets them think about future possibilities in a positive way.
0: Thank you, Maure Hicks. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.